This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers announced today that a site has been selected for a new juvenile correctional facility in Milwaukee. The new site brings the state one step closer to closing the Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake correctional facilities, which have been plagued for years by abuse and maltreatment of youth imprisoned there. Funds have been allocated for the new site, and the Milwaukee Common Council has passed a resolution supporting the proposal. There are still many procedural hurdles before construction can begin, including rezoning and public hearings. The charitable arm of the Green Bay Packers announced a $250,000 grant for Dane County's Center for Black Excellence and Culture on Monday. The Green Bay Packers Foundation has been running its grant program since 2013 and has disbursed almost $8 million to other state organizations, reports WISC-TV. The Center for Black Excellence and Culture has been running a capital campaign since late last year, hoping to reach $36 million so it can break ground on its envisioned center. The center hopes to open sometime in 2024 and will it be a, will be a space that celebrates black history and culture for the Madison area. The Madison Metropolitan School District has more than 140 teacher vacancies just weeks before the start of school. For comparison, in 2018, the district had only 30 vacancies by this time of year. That info was revealed at last night's Board of Education meeting, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Teacher training is slated to begin in less than two weeks, and the school district is scrambling to fill as many vacancies as possible. Already there are plans to use the district's substitute teachers as stopgaps while vacancies are filled. The district may also turn to using central office staff or support staff as substitute teachers, according to the school assistant superintendent. Moreover, the school district is working with universities to find recent graduates who could fill the vacancies, but the district's human resources department says progress has been slow. Meanwhile, at last night's school board meeting, MMSD administrators are proposing to increase the pay for hourly staff. In total, certain, certain hourly staff will see more than a $2 an hour increase. This proposal comes after the school board approved a similar pay increase for wage staff a week and a half ago. Neither pay increase has been, has been received well by Madison Teachers, Inc., the union that represents local teachers and staff, which says that they are not adequate to keep up with inflation. The union has asked for a $5 an hour increase for hourly staff and a 3% base wage increase for salaried staff. For its part, the school district has pointed to the most recent state budget, which forbids revenue increases for school districts as a reason why it cannot afford more generous pay increases. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 1,463 new confirmed COVID cases reported in Wisconsin yesterday, with a daily average of 1,605 cases over the past week. Additionally, 14.5% of all reported COVID tests have been positive over the last week. There were four new confirmed deaths from the disease reported in the state yesterday. That brings Wisconsin to a total of 13,250 people confirmed to have died from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Dane County has returned to a medium level of community spread of the virus, with 94 confirmed cases reported yesterday. And now on to today's top stories. It's election day. Have you voted yet? WORT producer Nate Weggehout hit the polls earlier today to talk with voters to learn why they are voting in the 2022 primary election. It was a beautiful day to get out and vote today. Voting began at 7 a.m. this morning, but those were far from the first votes cast. As of 9 a.m. yesterday, over 21,000 absentee ballots had been returned to the Madison clerk's office. 
Voting kicked off with a bang today, and as of 11 a.m., over 16,000 ballots had been cast in the city of Madison. I began at Fire Station 14 on Derry Drive, where voters had no line to wait to get in to vote. What's your name? Luann Russell. And uh, why are you out here today, Luann? To vote for, you know, the primaries. Sure. And uh, why why vote in the primary here? Why did you well, vote in this election? Because of all the things that are going on, it's important to, you know, cast my vote and, you know, the future of what's happening politically in our country. At the Door Creek Church on the northeast side of Madison, voters walked past a funeral procession to vote for their chosen candidates. Uh, then what's your name? Teresa. Teresa, and uh, why are you out here today? Um, to make my vote count. And uh, why are you uh, voting in uh, this primary election here? Um, just because I know that we need to vote. It's just important and it's become more obvious over the time that our vote is important. I think, I hope. What do you want to know? Just about why you're out here, basically. Oh. Got to vote. Got this, uh, got to vote. Everybody's got to vote. So, yeah. Doing my, doing my duty. At the Steam Fitters Local 601, voters were out in droves as they went to vote over their lunch hour. Sure. What's your name? Uh, Charles. Uh, and uh, why are you out here today? To vote. And uh, why are you voting here today? Well, I think voting is an important thing. I'm a veteran. I feel it's important that uh, we continue democracy forward by voting. What's your name? Uh, Stacy Menting. All right, and Stacy, why are you uh, out here today? Just wanted to make sure that I got out and exercised my right to vote. And uh, why are you vote, voting in uh, this election here? I think it's important that we get out and, and um, make our feelings known to our, our candidates whenever they're running. You're with who? W-O-R-T. Oh, W-O-R-T, sir. Yes. Uh, so, uh, what's your name? <laughs> My name is Jane. Uh, and why are you out here today? Uh, it's election day. We're out for every election day. All right. And uh, why why are you voting in uh, this election here today? Um, I guess we vote in every election, but it's uh, super important for people to get out for the primary. What's your name? Patrick Moore. And uh, why are you out here today? I'm out here fulfilling my citizen's mandate to vote. And uh, why are you why are you voting in this election? Everybody should vote in every election be because uh, there are too many there are too many influencers around the place like Facebook and all these media stuff that's n no offense <laughs> uh, that's going on. And so I think people need to exercise their civil rights, which part of which is voting. Finally, I head to the south side to check out the Highland Manor Park. As it was well past the lunch hour now, the poll was quiet, though poll workers assured me that they had been steadily busy just a few hours before. Uh, and uh, what's your name? My name is Elizabeth Young. And uh, why are you out here today? I am out here to cast my vote for, uh, for Tony Evers and for Mandela Barnes and for the right of women to choose abortion in this state. And uh, so why are you voting in this primary election here today? Because showing up matters. If you haven't voted yet today, you still can. Polls close at 8 p.m., and as long as you are in line by then, you will be able to vote. A few reminders before you head out. Make sure you have a valid photo ID, and be sure to double-check your voting location before you head out. There are almost 100 different polling locations around all of Madison. Finally, this is a partisan primary election, so be sure you only vote for one party. Otherwise, your ballot may not be counted.
For up-to-date election results on area races, be sure to check out the WORT Twitter at WORT News. Reporting for WORT News. You didn't run for election though. I didn't I didn't vote for you. I actually should have been more active in sending out the stuff. Next year I vote for you. Okay, <laughs> okay there we go. All Thank right. you. I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. Madison's high and low temperatures the past couple of days are much cooler than what we felt over the weekend. Don't get too comfortable, though, as there's a chance for storms later this week. With more about what to expect, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis. Weather in Madison is changing a little bit. With lows dropping and the days not getting warm as quickly as before, temperatures in the early morning started out at 61 degrees with a mix between cloudy and foggy conditions. We didn't reach the low 70s until 11 a.m., which isn't typical for us, especially with the high humidity we have been seeing today. Temperatures are currently sitting at around 78 degrees, and with the humidity sitting at 45%, it feels to be about 80 degrees out. Winds are coming from the east at two miles per hour, so we aren't getting the warmth from the south and not much wind to cool things down either. The UV index today reached the very high category, hitting 8.3, so remember to apply sunscreen because the sunbird is not appealing. Today's grass pollen was in the moderate category and is looking to stay in that category for the next few days. Tonight's low can be getting all the way down to 60 degrees or lower, again, much colder than we have been seeing. Tomorrow, we will be seeing warm and humid conditions with a high looking to be around 84 degrees, but it won't be hitting that temperature until later in the afternoon. The morning hours will make a jump from the low 60s to the high 70s but not reaching the 80s until the afternoon, most likely. Humidity will begin in the 90s percentile in the morning, but will cut back into the afternoon. Low wind speeds will be coming from the west and northwest tomorrow. Thursday, we are looking to have a slight chance for thunderstorms or showers earlier in the day, but we are looking to stay cool with a high of 76 degrees and winds coming from the northeast. Looking into Friday and the weekend, it is also looking to have pleasant temperatures, but we are likely to see a high coverage of clouds with chance of showers and thunderstorms from Friday throughout next week. From the WORT station with your weather report, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Allegations of racism and supervisory retaliation emerged at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Dane County approved an independent investigation of the zoo earlier this year. The county board promised to hire an ex-judge to preside over the investigation. That judge was announced Friday and is former Dane County Judge Valerie bailey Reen. Earlier today, the former judge sat down with WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout to talk about the investigation and about Wisconsin's past with judges turned investigators. 
I'm on the line now with Valerie Bailey-Reen, a recently retired Dane County judge who announced on Friday uh, will be leading an investigation into the Henry Vilas Zoo. Valerie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today. No problem. So, Valerie, just to sort of kick things off, how is retirement going uh, and sort of then going from there? When was your official last day as a Dane County judge? Uh, July 31st, my term ended. All right, so it's only been a little bit over a week. How's it been going so far? Well, pretty well. On my first day of retirement, I shot a hole in one, so I was pretty happy with that. Hey, nothing. You can't be can't be going wrong with that. Uh, so, with going from that, there, you know, you were recently named as the person investigating the Henry Vilas Sue. Now, I know you can't go into too many of the details with this, but just sort of broadly, what is this investigation, and what are you what are you sort of looking for? Well, um, I think you should take a look at the Common Council's resolution that has, it it was the document that authorized the investigation, um, and I um, really think that that's kind of uh, the starting point. I think that um, they uh, selected me because of my background in private practice doing investigations prior to being on the bench. I served a, a, a full term um, as a sitting judge um, and my reputation of being fair and impartial. That's what a judge does and that's what anything that I will be doing will be um, with that in mind. And so can you go into your past as an investigator a little bit? What what else have you done? Well, I was a um, an attorney with Corals and Brady for 25 years, most of which as a partner. I did uh, a lot of different areas, but I had clients that were publicly traded companies that had concerns of, in one of their companies something had um, allegedly occurred. They needed someone to investigate and determine whether or not the allegations were true or not um, for publicly reporting purposes. Um, I also was hired as um, by a special litigation committee of a publicly held company to investigate allegations of um, misdoing by the principal owner. So um, in my experience, both at Quarles, um, well, at Quarles, it primarily was with dealing with businesses, dealing with issues. I was not a labor attorney, but labor and personnel issues typically crop up if you have um, issues with litigation. So this investigation is going to be a little bit, little bit different for, from you, but you know you still have that sort of background there, sort of correct there. Correct, correct. This is an investigation as to um, a number of areas. That's why they um, were wanting to engage a retired judge because you need more of a generalist who is be able to analyze, review, and um, provide a report and some opinions. Um, and it's in different areas, so they needed somebody who was more of a generalist, which is what a judge is. Um, you get every type of case that comes in front of you, and you have to learn about the facts and the law of the cases and uh, and basically uh, address areas of the law that you may not have approached before. 
And so now, as we mentioned before, you uh, just recently retired uh, from being a judge, and now you're going right into uh, investigating the zoo for the county. Why did you decide to take this on so soon after you retired? Well, I I retired because my term was up. I knew I wasn't going to be able to... Um, I was not, for personal reasons, another six-year term uh, wasn't in the cards, and I believe that people of Dane County should elect their uh, their judges. And so I ran and for an open seat and was elected. So I uh, wanted to give that opportunity to my successor, who, by the way, will be wonderful. So that's why I did not run again. Um, but frankly, I'm 59. I have been practicing law for a number of years, and I and I'm always um, up for a challenge. And I was approached and asked if I was interested in perhaps doing this opportunity. And I do. I will be doing other things in the future too. I'm when I say retired, it's uh, retired from being an active judge. It's not retired from <laughs> being involved in the community. Retired from the uh, bench there, but not from the Madison community here. That's correct. That's, that's, that sounds good. <laughs> so going a little bit from there, I know that there's been some uh, people who have been a little bit critical about you leading this investigation, even before you were announced to be the person to be leading the investigation here. I know specifically uh, County Executive Joe Parisi did not sign on to the idea earlier this year. What are your thoughts on that? What would you say to people who are worried about another retired judge turning into an, an investigator here? Well, um, I understand his concerns, I think, and this was prior to I even being approached to to do this. Uh, I had not been approached earlier this year. This came up after my retirement. So um, his comments, I think, were directed towards someone who I think had a, another retired judge who was doing an investigation and, and appeared to have an agenda. My comments are, I don't have an agenda. I'm not political. I'm fair and impartial. And I understand things from both the management and the employee side of things. So um, I hope to have people's cooperation. That's what I'm looking for. I think it's in everyone's best interest. And clearly, I understand um, people's concerns. They don't want someone who has an agenda coming in and trying to uh, find evidence to support that agenda, and I, I don't have it. I, I have no opinion at this point. I'm, Like I said, I was hired to be fair and impartial, and that's my task. And since you were first announced as the investigator on Friday, have you been able to talk with Executive Parisi at all? Um, I am waiting. Uh, yes, I no. Let me back up. Um, I think that's a logical first step. I look forward to talking to him. Um, I have not officially gotten the go-ahead yet, and so obviously I want to wait and make sure that they're, the council and everyone's comfortable with um, me leading the investigation before I approach the, the executive, but obviously that's the fir first step to take. And do you know about when you will be beginning your investigation? I know the press release said that you may have a report uh, by early October or by October, I guess I, I should say there. Uh, but do you know when you are going to get started? Um, whenever I'm told that I'm a go. So I was not aware of the press release last Friday, um, which is fine. Um, I agreed to do it. I'm glad to do it. But I will... Um, 
I will wait until I'm directed to start, and then I will. So now one last final thing, and I sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier here, but I feel like I would be remiss not to ask you a little bit about Michael Gableman, another former judge who this time was on the state Supreme Court, who later became an investigator uh, this time for the 2020 presidential election. Now, you spent a lot of time with Gableman in court right before you retired. I know this is a little bit of a shift, but can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, they were open records cases, and I oversaw two of the three or four open records cases. So um, I can't really tell you more than other than what happened in those cases. They involved requests for open records. All right. And Valerie, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me on sort of any of this? Uh, Anything you'd like to get out there for people to know? Well, I think if people have relevant information and they want to share it with me, they certainly can um, do so. Like I said, I want this to be fair and impartial. If anybody has information or is concerned about um so if people have relevant information, I think everyone in this county loves the zoo. The zoo is a shining star um, in uh, in the county. It's um, And I think that um, if there is anyone who has personal information, I would hope that they would be willing to speak to me with it so that that can help um, in whatever understanding I get of the zoo. I've been talking with Valerie Bailey-Reen, a former judge here in Dane County, who is now working on an investigation into the Henry Vilas Zoo. Uh, Valerie, thank you so much for talking with me again here today. All right. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Thank you for joining us. On the second edition of Our Faith Communities, feature contributor David Ahrens speaks with Pastor Everett Mitchell of Christ the Solid Rock Church. Mitchell, who is also a sitting Dane County judge, explains how faith guides his work in the courtroom and what it means to him to live as a Christian. This is David Ahrens for WORT News. In this segment of the series, Our Faith Communities, we have an edited interview with Reverend Everett Mitchell. Reverend Mitchell is the pastor of Christ the Solid Rock Church. He is also a judge in the Dane County Court and recently announced his candidacy for the state Supreme Court. Reverend Mitchell graduated from Morehouse College with a degree in mathematics. He also has a Master of Divinity and Master of Theology degrees from Princeton Theological Seminary. Reverend Mitchell attended and graduated from UW School of Law. Reverend Mitchell's view of the message of the Christian scripture and the role of the church in the community and the lives of Christians diverges from mainstream church that is promoted in most of the mass media. His message here is that the essential mission of the church is not to enable individual salvation and happiness, but a community that loves its neighbor and seeks justice differentiate a National Baptist, say, from uh, African Methodist? It is a theological significance where they put importance. Methodists are generally come up under the Methodist tradition, so they have a different way that they think about, you know, placement of pastors and the movement of pastors, whereas Baptists generally are invested in local congregations. So they may have a national body, but it's really a local congregation 
was Methodist, which came through Charles Wesley, and then eventually mm. uh, was moved toward more traditional black Methodism after the Methodists were not, you know, accepted uh, in, as part of the congregation, especially white congregations. Mm -hmm. Baptists have always been, especially African-American Baptist churches, have always been rooted in the importance of the local church as opposed to a national body that kind of dictates what the local church does. And did you start your church? No, I'm the second pastor. It was already started oh. uh, once I came. And the name of your church is again? Christ the Solid Rock. Mm -hmm. On Christ the Solid Rock, I'll stand all of the ground is sinking sand. So it's Christ the Solid Rock. Yeah. How would you characterize someone who is a faithful Christian? That's a loaded theological concept. Oh. And the reason I say it's a loaded theological concept is because all these different groups have a very different idea of what yeah. they mean to a faithful Christian yeah. is. For me, you know, you know, I follow, I say, well, I follow Jesus. What did Jesus require us to do? Love God, uh, love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, there are definitely echoes in his, in the scriptures of the gospels where we're supposed to stand with people, stand up for people, where we're supposed to, you know, look for opportunities to highlight ways in which systemic stuff limits everyday people's access to God and misinterprets you know, scripture to benefit the powerful. So if you're going to be faithful, it is about doing the things that Jesus did in the everyday life of people, right? To to use whatever power, whether it is internal or is it cosmic or if it's external to you that gives you something to do, how do you use that power to support making sure that people are not invisible, but rather, you know, using that power to, to, to institute some type of change that, that awakens people to the possibilities that may not have been awakened to before. So it's not just doing full prayers, throw some Hail Marys up, or some rosaries. It really is a consistent and committed dedication to allowing yourself to see human beings at the most basic level as children of God. And when you say awaken people, is it awaken people to God and Jesus and or to understanding their world? I think it's awakening people in who they are as a world. I mean, just Jesus to me is a manifestation of those kinds of people who are trying to awake people, right? Use their influence to wake people up because, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. I believe one leader <laughs> said that. So religion has a way of giving people answers, simple answers that may not actually resolve you know, the overall difficulties of life, right? But it seems simple, right? Black and white, easy to understand, easy to digest. I don't think that that's what has really happened to people. I think people have been put to sleep and they've been told that these things are important and you just focus on that, everything else will work out. While all these other systems are robbing their communities, diminishing their bodies, mm -hmm. destroying the economic structure and not giving them a pathway Toward success, mm -hmm. so I believe you have to wake people up. You have mm -hmm. to give them permission to to ask questions, and basically, being woke really just means being willing to ask questions mm -hmm. and being able to give people permission to ask the difficult questions that nobody else wants to ask. You're listening to WORT News. This is an edited interview with Reverend Everett Mitchell, person that you would meet and say, "This is a Christian." Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have a a template to say, you know, you mm -hmm. meet a person, you say, I know that they're Christian. I, 
I will say that, you know, you will know, and this is one of the teachings I always think about, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. Mm -hmm. so Jesus always indicated that that's how you find whether or not somebody is. The label, everybody got can have the label, but it's the fruit of their life, the fruit of their commitment, the fruit of who they are, right? Are they walking in love? Are they walking in peace? Are they walking in fellowship? Are they... Are they, you know, reserving judgments against people? Are they, or are they just aligning themselves with power to make it easy for them to control others, right? So you, you know, based on the fruit that they bear, what does their life look like, you know? Mm -hmm. And what does their commitments look like in general? It's, it's, not, it's not an easy, digestible concept to say, well, I know you are a Christian. Well, you know, you, you can have a robe on, you can wear a nice cross, but that doesn't, to me, indicate that yeah. you are a Christian. It just indicates because the church, at least the Christian church, has so many people who have embraced the symbols, but they still abuse people. They still rob people blind, sexually assault people, diminish the the humanity of so many groups of people. And they do it in the name of God and then attach Jesus to it as if they'd be okay with that. And I'm not saying that from a judgy perspective. I'm saying it from a fruit perspective, right? We're supposed to love mm -hmm. our neighbor. We're supposed to, you know, what does God require of us but to, you know, love mercy, you know, do justice and walk humbly without God. That's what we're supposed to be about. But how do you enable people to walk on that path? The, the difficulty is that we're media driven, right? The media now has um, influenced what we see. So, you know, the majority of people that are seen, you know, they have an invested interest in making the media part of Christian message seems so attractive, right? So it's very difficult to get people who don't have big multimedia social media followings uh, into that rotation of what we are supposed to be doing as a value-driven, you know, faith tradition. It's just not popular, right? It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not sexy to tell people you're going to suffer for justice. It's not attractive to say that your commitment to what's right may mean that you're by yourself. That the, the sacrifice of standing for and with people might mean you might end up on a cross by yourself after you'd have helped out all these other people at the same time. Like that's not gonna get the money coming in, you know, in droves, right? People want, they want easy access. They want easy things, right? And the easy you can give it to them they, and promise them all this stuff. The creativity of the, the messaging is to remind people that even though it's difficult, it does not mean that it is impossible for us to achieve and extract from life all kinds of happiness. Mm -hmm. But don't let happiness be your goal. You know, let, let, let the love that we want to give, the, the connection that we want to have with human, other human beings, let that be the instrument, let that be the goal, and mm -hmm. everything else will fall from that. I don't think the scriptures were meant to be an individualistic approach. Mm -hmm. I think it was meant to be in community, right? And so what we have done is made it individual because we wrapped it up into what America is. And so you don't need to be in community to hear the voice of God. You just need to be, you know, you can be Do by yourself. yourself. You know, <laughs> everything's, yeah, it's D-Y-I, you know. But yet when we come in this context, it's almost like you got to be apart. You got to be so distinct, got to be so separate when reality is who we are as a community is what brings us because we don't know how to do community and relationship with God. You know, it's been two separate spectrums. But I'm saying yeah. that actually it's really Jesus could have been by himself kicking it 
doing all kinds of stuff, throwing it out. But he chose to be with disciples, mm -hmm. with women, with people who had been healed, with sick people. And that is a reminder that we're, this is not a do-it-yourself. Because if the Son of God was among people, then we, you know, we too need to be among people to figure all this out. You've been listening to an interview with Reverend Everett Mitchell of Christ the Solid Rock Church on another edition of Our Faith Communities on WORT News. This has been David Ahrens. Thanks to Sholly Pittman, WORT News Director, and thanks for listening. Cats are tricky animals. Yes, they love yarn and catnip and empty boxes, but they also love to hunt, which can cause problems for local wildlife. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares how cats can become one of the most dangerous creatures to our local critters. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about cats, birds, and people, and the damages that are done to wild animal populations. So this segment was prompted by a recent opinion article that was actually published by Adam Larson, who's a writer and science communicator for NBC News. And it came out today, uh, which is August 9th, uh, relating to cats and their status as an invasive species. So I know that's a bit of a controversial topic, but it's something important in our field, especially as wildlife rehabilitators, when we know we have so many different types of interactions between wild animals, domestic animals, whether it's to each other or vice versa. And it's something we deal with every single day, uh, mostly in the summer season when we have baby animals and our baby season is when cats and dogs might try to find those little guys on the ground, but we see it all year round. So according to the article that was just published, the Polish Academy of Sciences, so that's the country of Poland, officially deemed domestic cats as an invasive alien species. So it's not really a title that's taken lightly and it definitely stimulates a lot of controversy, um, which is tough because we're um, at the Dane County Humane Society, a shelter that you know has cats and dogs and other companion animals, and we also have a wildlife program. So whether you're on one side or the other about whether cats outdoors are a good thing or a bad thing, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about what we know at least about the behavior and, you know, what is the cost potentially and what does it really mean for wildlife in our area. So first I want to start with defining what an alien or non-native species is in this case and it's really only defined that way if an animal or whatever it is causes economic or environmental harm or harm to human health so cats have been given this terminology uh, mostly as a way to spread public education um, and then also to inform future policy making um, just because cats have contributed to a wide range of problems including extinction of about 63 species in the wild around the world and that's according to the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They published some really great materials actually just this last year in October 2021 um, about domestic cats. And they say that um, although cats are definitely one of the most common household pets in the U.S., there's only about maybe 25% of households that do own cats. And that's from data from the American Veterinary Medical Association uh, from 2018. So it could be more than that now. But there are 
about 164 million cats that reside in the United States. And did you know that about 30 to 80 million of them are unowned? So that means that they're either free ranging or they might be feral or, you know, they're just, they don't really have an owner that might claim them. They just live out in the wild. What's interesting is that the published materials from USDA uh, talk about uh, the exact impact of cats on wildlife. But if we were to say that there was on the low end, 30 million feral or free ranging cats in the US, um, and that's like the lowest of the estimate. And if they say that research is definitely, it shows about eight different birds per cat per year are killed and that's just birds so if every of one of those 30 million cats took eight birds a year and they came up with this really cool calculation which i thought was just amazing to share that an adult bird is valued at 30 bucks i think 30 dollars is maybe a little low but they they based it on bird watchers that spend about 40 cents per bird that they observe if you're talking about bird watching as a sport and then they add in hunters spending about 216 dollars per bird that they shoot uh, for hunting sport and then wildlife specialists like us rehabilitators send, spend anywhere from 100 to 800 dollars per bird that are hand reared to release or that are rehabilitated for injuries due to cats that's a huge range of values but they say that approximately 17 billion dollars per year in the u.s is the economic impact from cats that harm wildlife. And that's from birds, but they actually also have about 6.3 to 22.3 billion mammals that are annually lost in the United States. Um, and that's just because a lot of their diet, if they're outdoors, are uh, native species. So, you know, I have cats at home. I love my cats very much. They stay indoors, though. But they absolutely love watching the birds. They love, you know, seeing squirrels outside. Um, and they definitely are interested in them. And so you know that if a cat, you know, is going to go outside, they're going to na naturally want to hunt. They're naturally going to want to chase something that's moving. So it makes sense definitely that they would, you know, play with or potentially attack or have that, you know, instinct that cats have to grab a bird or grab a mouse or something. It's mostly that, you know, for us that are, you know, have cats indoors, you know, we're able to monitor them and, you know, try to keep them outside, whether it's on a leash or maybe in a contained area. And obviously it's not perfect to be able to, to keep them from catching something. But um, if they're keeping a close eye on, then it tends to be a little bit easier. The bigger problem is more the free-ranging cats, which means, again, either feral, meaning that it is a type of free-ranging cat, but there's no ownership and it doesn't really interact with people, usually aggressive towards people. You might see those cats out and about. The ones that are free-ranging might be actually like more owned by people, whether it's just that they get fed regularly outside, but then, you know, have human contact in some way. But the way that they impact wildlife, besides just directly eating them through predation, uh, they also compete with each other. They compete with other mammal species, especially. So things like raccoons and possums, etc., and definitely spread disease or parasites between wildlife and between cats. And that also impacts species survival. I guess, uh, you know, for predation purposes, you could have an entire nest failure of birds if they all fledge to the ground and then they're eaten by a cat. Uh, injuries if they prematurely fledge because of startle behavior or they're scared that a cat is predating on them or behavioral changes just in general. It might cause birds not to want to nest in an area if they lost a nest due to cat predation. So, you know, what does that mean for rehabilitators? Well, they've done a lot of different research studies. Um, there's a couple of really great ones. One that I think of off the top of my head from the 
the uh, Wildlife Center of Virginia, um, who did just an excellent study. But just from the USDA's perspective, looking at 82 different wildlife centers across North America, uh, they say that cats were responsible for about 52% of all of the bird intake to rehab centers that tip birds. And then of those, you know, so it's half your your species, 78% of them were cat-related admissions and they either died or had to be euthanized. And, and that's just really tough because, you know, the bite wounds usually get very easily infected. And if you don't start antibiotic treatment right away, it can really have a poor prognosis um, or the injuries were so severe that, you know, obviously rehabilitation wasn't even possible. And so there are definitely uh, things to, to kind of help mitigate these situations, which is, you know, trying to educate folks about keeping cats indoors, talking about spay and neuter programs and TNR, which is trap neuter release, which um, hasn't really shown to be quite effective yet. But, you know, there's there's ways that uh, I know there are pushes out there to help mitigate some of the, the damages that are done. And so, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we whether you're on, like I said, one side or the other, there will be something hopefully uh, in the future with time that might be able to help, you know, balance wildlife populations and, and invasive species. Because although cats even kill the other invasive species like pigeons and the house mice and the starlings and things, eh, they're not even quite as effective in controlling those invasive populations either. Um, so then what do we do about cats? It's a big question. So if you aren't sure, but you have cats that you know of are outside or your own cat goes outside, you know, consider the economic impact and the impact to wildlife species that the cat has um, and know that they live a longer and healthier life if they are kept indoors. And there are ways to help provide extra stimulation through playtime and through lots of exercise. And if we can provide them with that, then hopefully they'll do less harm to our native species out in the wild. But of course, if you ever do find a situation where a cat and a wild animal has had some kind of interaction, definitely give us a call at the Wildlife Center here at DCHS. Um, and our phone number is 608-287-3235. So thanks for listening here on WORT about cats, birds, and their impact on wildlife. And we hope to hear from you soon. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Radio Astronomy, feature contributor Andrew Nine blasts off to Mars to share the story of one of space exploration's biggest achievements, the Curiosity rover. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight we are celebrating a very special birthday. This past Friday, the Mars rover Curiosity celebrated 10 years on the Red Planet. Tonight, I'd like to talk about some of the things we've learned from the last decade of roving on the surface of Mars. Even before landing on the Martian surface in August 2012, Curiosity was already making history. Previous rovers on Mars most notably Spirit and Opportunity, which landed in 2004, used airbags to cushion their landing on the surface. Since Curiosity was so much larger, about the size of an SUV, it had to use an entirely different method to safely touch down on the surface, the sky crane. 
The sky crane was an apparatus that hovered about 25 feet above the surface as it lowered Curiosity down to the ground with three nylon cables. Once Curiosity touched down, it severed the cables and flew off to crash land a safe distance away from the rover. This method was so successful that it was repeated for the most recent Mars rover to land, Perseverance. Since landing in 2012, Curiosity has traveled almost 18 miles through Gale Crater and up into the foothills of Mount Sharp, analyzing 41 rock and soil samples along the way. That may not sound impressive, but remember that Mars is a hundred million miles from Earth. If Curiosity breaks down, there's no tow truck going out to bring it back into the shop. Curiosity has to be very careful when driving across the Martian surface, since there are shop rocks all over the place that can damage its wheels. There's also no real need for Curiosity to move quickly. The landing site, Gale Crater, was chosen specifically because it offered the best chance to look back into Martian geological history without having to travel great distances. So what have we learned from Gale Crater? One of Curiosity's main science goals was to determine if the environment on Mars was ever capable of supporting life. From its first drilling on Mars, Curiosity found promising signs. Its first soil sample contained elements like carbon, phosphorus, and sulfur, which are considered to be the building blocks of life on Earth. Not only that, but Curiosity also found that Gale Crater was filled with liquid water deep in Mars's past, another promising sign that life could have been possible at some point in Martian history. Another sample of Martian rocks dating back three and a half billion years found evidence for organic molecules, molecules that contain carbon and are strongly associated with life on Earth. This by itself is not direct evidence for life, but it does indicate that at some point in the past, Mars's environment was much more hospitable than it is now. Curiosity has also uncovered something very strange about the Martian environment. The level of methane in the atmosphere changes with the Martian seasons. The seasonal change isn't by much, only by a fraction of a part per billion, but the fact that it changes at all is interesting. This also does not prove that life exists on Mars, since methane can also be produced through geologic processes. That said, those seasonal changes might be the result of microbial life on Mars undergoing seasonal changes like life on Earth. This is by no means definite, so a lot of further study is needed before we can confirm this is a result of life on Mars. Another major goal of the Curiosity mission is to gauge what the conditions are like on the Martian surface now, with the goal of eventual human exploration of Mars. To that end, Curiosity has been studying the amount of ultraviolet light that reaches the surface of Mars, as well as the amount of radiation from cosmic rays interacting with the Martian atmosphere. Both of these in large amounts could be seriously dangerous for future astronauts exploring the surface of Mars so we would need a very good idea of how much radiation to expect before we get there. Curiosity has measured the radiation on the Martian surface consistently over the last 10 years, and the results of those measurements indicate that future crewed missions are feasible. Over a span of 500 days on the surface, combined with about a year round trip from Earth to Mars and back, Curiosity determined that the crew would be exposed to about one sievert of radiation in total, which is the maximum that NASA allows astronauts to be exposed to over their entire career. While there are no plans for humans to land on Mars anytime soon, Curiosity has shown us that it is possible. And the mission isn't over yet. Curiosity has begun to move into what is believed to be an ancient floodplain near Gale Crater and Mount Sharp. 
The area is covered in sulfate crystals, mineral salts that can be left behind when water evaporates. The plan is that Curiosity will explore this region for the next few years and study how water interacted with the surrounding rock, as well as anything else that may have been left behind when the waters receded. Whatever Curiosity finds next on Mars, we'll be sure to tell you all about it on a future episode of Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in tonight, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Nate Carlin engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast, and make sure to subscribe and listen. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.